0: Hey friends, welcome to the Her God Story podcast, where you will always hear a good story to encourage and inspire you in your walk with the Lord. I'm your host, Jody Caracosta, ministry leader at Somebody Cares America and International, author and traveler on this journey of faith. For our regular listeners, we are taking a production break with no new episodes in the month of August, but we have some great stories lined up to share with you again in September. So make sure to like or follow this podcast on your favorite streaming platform, so you won't miss any of the stories of my upcoming guests. And August will be a great time to catch up on some episodes you may have missed. I encourage you to invite some friends to listen to the same episode, then get together and talk about what God spoke to you. You can download our prepared episode questions from hergodstory.org and then discuss over your favorite refreshments. It's a great way to reach out to friends who don't know Christ yet. Include them in the conversation and see what God will do. Listening to an episode takes much less time than reading most books, and we think you're going to have a lot of takers to a Her God Story podcast club. So gather some friends and try it out. When you do, email us at prayer at somebodycares.org to let us know so we can be praying for you. You know, we all love the hero story. Just look at the superhero movies, comic books, spinoff toys that are in such great demand, or the myriad of movies, shows, and books with the hero theme. Some of us even dream of being the hero of the story. You know, God put the desire for a hero in our hearts because we need a hero to save us from the enemy of our souls. Of course, our hero, our savior is Jesus. But still, the desire for us to be a hero is certainly compelling and can be very strong. Isaiah 43, 11 tells us, I, only I am the Lord. And there is no savior besides me or no hero besides him. While he does empower us to do some pretty amazing things, we have to rely on his strength and not our own. My guest, Mary Fokey, has grappled with this truth and is learning to do the little things that God considers great in his kingdom. Mary is a registered nurse who served in the U.S. Army for six years. Married to an Army major and now mother of three, Mary is committed to the process of personal sanctification and sharing the love of Jesus with her neighbors and community. She's also my great niece. Welcome, Mary.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to share what Jesus has done in my life.
0: So Mary, you grew up in a house with Christian parents, attending church and wanting to understand what you believe, but it wasn't until you were in high school that you internalized that faith and committed your life to Christ. Share about those early years in your life and some of your faith questions and what ultimately brought you to your decision point.
1: I grew up in a wonderful, loving household where both my parents really modeled a long obedience in the same direction of faithfulness to God. They not only took me and my siblings to church, but their entire lives were living testimonies of God's power and goodness. But despite this, I began to grapple with faith in Jesus for myself in my early teen or preteen years. I recognized by the testimony of my parents' life that to be a Christian demanded the entirety of your devotion. For them, it was the driving force in every decision in their lives, big or small. And I naturally questioned things, and it seemed to make sense that the main central focus of my life was something I really should get right and not just believe um, without having thought it through personally. Um, I remember as I was trying to discern who am I, what defines me, why does my life have meaning, all those types of questions, um, having the thought that if I was born in another country or to parents who brought me up as Muslims or as an atheist, is this truth, the truth of Jesus, something I would still believe? Is this Christianity stuff really true? Or is it just my particular cultural background, what my parents believe? Um, And sort of another factor at that point in my life was I saw all the things my friends were doing as teenagers and thought, if I'm going to have any fun, I can't be a Christian. (laughs) Um, So I decided to try and walk away from Christianity and go my own way. And for a short time, things seemed to be going fine. I had good grades. I was good at sports. I was popular. But internally, I was really miserable. I felt like a ship being buffeted around in the waves, just no anchor, no um, nothing to ground me. And I have a distinct memory sitting at the computer, writing paper, late at night in high school, and having the shocking realization that for the first time in my life, I had no answer to any of those deep questions of why am I here? Does my life have any meaning? And I could not let my mind be still and quiet. And that was horrible. Shortly after this, my parents caught me in a lie and grounded me for three months, which in high school seemed like an eternity. And during that time, I decided I really I needed to stop running away from God.
0: So at that point, um, you made that decision to commit your life to Jesus. I mean, it wasn't just stop running, but you turned into him, didn't you?
1: Yes. For me, especially initially, the change was slow. So externally, I stopped sneaking around and partying. I saw that being a Christian meant I did not do Certain naughty things. But I didn't initially internalize that it meant the lack of living for myself was living, or excuse me, the lack of living for myself was replaced with the joy of living for Christ. And when I reflect on that time, the song, The Goodness of God, it just really, really describes my salvation experience. Uh, there's a line in that song that says, all my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you have been so, so good. Your goodness is running after me. And in many ways, in those early years and months in high school, I was a, I was a reluctant Christian. I could not deny God's reality, his power, his goodness, his presence in my life. But it was still really hard for me to relinquish control. So he was running after me and I was sort of dragging my feet. Um, It is truly and entirely by God's grace and pursuit that I became a daughter of God. I was, yeah, quite reluctant initially.
0: You've mentioned that you were a really high achiever, good grades, good athlete, pushing yourself to excel. Uh, So when you went to college and you started thinking about your future, how did that play into your plans and your expectations for life? I mean, being the reluctant Christian that you were. Um, how did that all work in your plans? Cause you're a planner. You like to know what the future
1: holds. Yeah. When I got to college, that is when I think I really started to make my faith my own. And I got involved in Christian fellowship. I went to church of my own accord and I started to really try to follow Jesus wholeheartedly with my whole life. Um, In that time, inadvertently, I allowed my fervor for Jesus to sort of blend with a worldly hierarchical system that I superimposed on Christianity. So I I thought if I'm going to be a Christian, I need to be the most devoted, the most high end, the most super Christian possible. I, I don't want to be just a run of the mill Christian. And so to me, that meant I would show my devotion to God by becoming a sold out and single Christian missionary ideally someplace so dangerous most people would not volunteer to go there because of the potential cost and i i thought full-time vocational christians they're the tip of the spear you know missionaries in particular if i'm unmarried i won't be burdened with the concerns of family life and i set out to become a christian missionary in college i I double majored in nursing and religious studies, intending to become a nurse practitioner with a theological background who could then go and preach the gospel and provide care to those who would not otherwise have health care, which those things are not bad. I don't want to make them seem like they are, but in my naivete of what matters in God's kingdom, it was more about what I could achieve for God,
0: Yeah. So when God started leading you in a different direction, how, you know, what did you think about that? How did he do that? And how did he teach you about his plan for you? Because it wasn't what you were expecting it to be.
1: Yes, there was one huge and consistent kink in my plan to be an unmarried, sold out missionary for Jesus. And he had a name, Daniel Fokey. He was a friend from high school that attended West Point, and he felt called to be an Army officer. But he was also convinced that God wanted us to be in missions together, namely to date and ultimately get married. And this was a huge shift for me, and I I really wrestled with it. I prayed and asked God many times, why? Why, if I am willing to give up a family and a comfortable life, would you insist on giving it to me? I want to go do great things for you. Don't you understand that? You know, And through Daniel and in his pursuit of me, God was teaching me gently and graciously that he doesn't need me to do anything or save anyone. And it was the first step of me realizing what Tim Keller puts so well um, If Jesus is who he says he is, and this life is not the only one, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. So God doesn't need me to accomplish anything on his behalf. The arc of history hinges on the cross and on the resurrection, and my life fits into Jesus's story. Colossians 1 talks about the supremacy of Jesus and says, He is the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In everything he is preeminent. So the reality that the fullness of God dwelt in a human Jesus and he holds all things together, it sunk down into my heart and made me realize I don't have to accomplish anything on Christ's behalf, on Jesus's behalf. I have the privilege of just following his leading. So practically, this meant I surrendered my plan to be a missionary, at least for now, and followed what seemed to be the clear leading of the Lord instead. Um, I got engaged to and then married Daniel and ended up joining the army myself as a nurse. Um, And that was what God was calling me to do, at least in this season.
0: And that was a bit of a shift for you as well, because uh, being a part of the military was a little even antithetical to your belief system when you were a little bit younger. How did God transform and, and move you into an army life willingly?
1: Yeah, well, at times it wasn't willingly, to be honest, but I just could feel like that song I quoted earlier, the goodness of God pursuing me. And it. he kept putting on my heart that what he wanted me to do was to be an army officer. And I sort of took it one step at a time. And as I followed that, I realized that God used being in the military to really show me some deep flaws in myself that I perhaps wouldn't have seen, at least not as quickly. Um, through being an army officer, I quickly, quickly learned how I had a lack of gentleness and mercy. Um, I'm a driven and relatively confident person.
0: Yeah. Gentleness and mercy aren't typically things that you think are needed in the military, but, but they really are.
1: Yes. And I, I learned that in leadership position. I care about justice, right and wrong, doing things the right way. Um, but certainly then, and even now, I can be pretty blunt, um, impatient, and sometimes thoughtless about other people's feelings. And because I was an officer, I got put in many leadership positions very early on in my career. Um, that's one of the blessings and curses of being in the military. They, You're put in leadership quickly. I have one distinct memory of when I was fresh out of college, 22, 23 maybe, and I got put in a charge of a floor of maybe 10 other co-workers, some of whom twice my age, all of whom who had been doing the job longer than me. But since I was the military officer and they were either civilians or enlisted soldiers, I got put in charge. And that particular day, one of my co-workers was not doing what they should have. And I handled it really poorly. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I confronted them, which was the right thing to do. A patient needed their help and care and they were neglecting it. But I was harsh and arrogant. As the proverb says, it stirred up anger. (laughs) Um, That experience and many others like it, God used to show me that in Jesus, justice and gentleness can and do go together. It reminds me of that verse in Isaiah 42, where it describes Jesus as, he says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. And that picture of someone who is so gentle, even with a bruised reed, but also just, God revealed to me through those leadership things early on that I was missing a core reality of his nature that he is both merciful and just that tension between justice and mercy is solved on the cross and when I realize that how God is both just and merciful and that they can both be fully expressed in him in the son I realize I, I need to be that way I can't just care about justice doing things right. I have to also do it in a way that's merciful. And that's something I'm still working on and learning how to do is to be a woman who's like God, both gentle and faithfully pursuing justice.
0: Yeah, that's certainly part of the sanctification process. We all have those issues that God reminds us again and again in our lives that he wants to work in us. So we're all getting there.
1: (laughs) And the army definitely, God used that. God used it.
0: So after a few years, you and Daniel decided you wanted to start a family. And uh, like most people, you were wondering if you would be a good parent. Uh, share your personal internal struggle about that and how God has shown you his kindness and once again, goodness through your children.
1: Yes. <laughs> Being a mom, I had the opportunity to give my children a solid foundation to launch out into the world. in. And Proverbs is full of encouragements to train your children up in the Lord. But for me, being a mom was something I did not, I didn't grow up wanting that. And I'm not a particularly nurturing person in my flesh. So I was very nervous that in particular, my lack of gentleness and nurturing nature would not set our children up for success. Um. Certainly, I am not a perfect mother, but I have learned in these early years of parenting, our oldest daughters, is four and a half, um, that what God calls us to, he equips us for. And for me also, my children have been really surprisingly fun and funny. <laughs> I knew I would love them, but I did not realize what a gift it would be to get to hang out with these other tiny humans all the time who are silly and clever and unique. And it's just been a really unexpected gift that God gave me and Daniel. Truly, our children have been like a cup of overflowing blessings from God. I, I didn't realize I needed it. And it was just kind of God to give it to me, even when I didn't pursue it myself.
0: Yeah, sure. Sure. Share some of the share some of the fun stories that you've experienced with your kids, and how you've been training them, even at a young age, to love Jesus.
1: I did mention my oldest is four and a half, and i I have thought a lot, and my husband and I have talked a lot about things. We've started to do catechisms with our with our oldest, but actually, a resource that I have really loved um, is Slugs and Bugs, which is a Um, Christian musician and he, they create um, there's I think four albums called sing the Bible and they're all just Bible verses put to song. Some of them are funny, but many of them are things that I use. I mean, daily to both encourage and correct myself. (laughs) It's funny how sometimes the things coming out of my mouth at my children are also things God's speaking to me, but yeah, having the scriptures on repeat in my mind something that I listen to with them and then use as a as a tool it's I mean they're available you can just look them up on YouTube or Spotify is, is how I typically use it but it's really that has been something that I really enjoyed as a teaching tool I'd have to think of some funny stories there our kids are just they're fun and funny.
0: I came to know the Lord when I was very young, six years old. And I remember back in that day, scripture songs were big, you know, even for adults to sing as well. I mean, that was, and I learned so much by singing scripture because it gets in your heart and you remember it. I mean, years later, sometimes in my devotions, even now, those scripture songs from when I was a kid come back to me. And, you know, I, I sing them back again or as I'm, you know, going about my day. So the power of putting scripture to music in the hearts of little ones is it will last a lifetime. Now, you know, friends, there are children without parents as well as widows all over the world, uh, and they need to experience the tangible expression of God's love. Many have special needs that we as a company of women can meet together. Would you consider joining us with a special gift to help? Just go to HerGodStory.org and click on the Widow and Orphan tab at the top of the page. Uh, Mary, you've told me that being a mom has been the most intensely sanctifying period of your life. And I can completely understand when God graced me with a family, he also used them to turn up the heat of his purifying fire in my life. Uh, But how has God done that in you? How's he worked in you and shown you about himself through motherhood? The
1: hymn, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. Having kids has really felt that way, except it's I need thee every second. <laughs> With other jobs or commitments I've had in my life, I could have a day off or a vacation or whatever. But especially in my children's first year of life, I was really tethered to them. And it felt and still feels intensely sanctifying because. I have to daily, hourly, sometimes minute by minute, choose to either be selfish and gratify what I want or like, or die to myself and do what is best for my child. And sometimes being a military spouse, the volume really gets turned up on this because we often don't live near family. And Daniel, my husband, is often gone. So many times there's no backup. There's no one to tag in if I'm having a hard day. And that has really made me lean on the Lord because I'm so out of my depth and so incapable of being the mom God calls me to be in my own strength. But when I have cried out to God, he has been so faithful. And I remember one season in particular when Daniel was deployed. My oldest was not even three and the youngest was under She was under a year old. And the whole time Daniel was gone, I had truly supernatural peace and patience and strength. And in John 14, when Jesus tells his disciples, peace, I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. That's the kind of peace that I had. It was a tangible peace. Even when I mean, things could be very chaotic with bodily fluids in all the wrong places all over the house and not sleeping and just a little bit of chaos. I had peace and God was tangibly present in my life and in my parenting. God was so faithful to provide and just be the strength when I didn't have it in that time.
0: Yeah, a lot of a lot of parents. I think, experienced that. But a lot of parents need to hear that. Boy, when we call on the name of the Lord, he is quick to save. He's not far away, but he's quick to save. Um, you know, being a mom has also provided you some really wonderful opportunities to reach out to others in your neighborhood and in the military community. Uh, being a missionary to a not so difficult place to go, Um, And you and Daniel have been really intentional about this. Share what you've been doing and what you've seen the Lord do.
1: There's a book that really impacted me um, a few years ago called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And in it is a term called radically ordinary hospitality. And that is something that my husband and I feel God has really called us and our family to do in this season of life In John 13, Jesus says, I, as I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So, what we want to do, our heart's passion is to build loving Christian community that is quiet but radical. And I think that's something that we as humans, and perhaps in our Modern, Western, very individualistic culture deeply crave a community of people that seeks the desires and good of others above themselves with radical self-giving, that is not common in our culture. And certainly we don't do this perfectly, but it's something that as we receive the love of Christ, we try to live out practically, which for us looks like hosting, facilitating, and generally leading weekly gatherings for other Christians in our home. Lots of intentional walks with neighbors, meals shared with people, with believers and non-believers alike, all with the goal of growing a community that shares the love we have received in Christ. So, yeah, for me, instead of being a missionary, in a more exotic and overt way, I think God has called me and our family to live out radically ordinary hospitality. So we see our home not as ours at all, but as God's gift for us to use for the furtherance of his kingdom.
0: How has that impacted some of the people who've benefited from that radically ordinary hospitality. Is there, you know, anything you can share, of course,
1: without breaking any confidences? At our church in North Carolina, we led small groups and had people over to our house really pretty consistently for over five years. Um, And a lot of people being in a military community moved on to other places and posts. Um, But a lot of people have reached out to us and told us that that taste for community, for not just attending church or, you know, some sort of study, but to actually build deep community with other believers and have that accountability and that love in someone's life. uh, A lot of people have reached out to us and told us that shaped permanently the way that we view what it means to live like a Christian. And that's just by the, I mean by the grace of God because it's not our Christian community <laughs> is messy. <laughs> We're messy too even as the leaders, but being in community with people you it's yeah, it's not always certainly not always easy, but it is deep and it is real and it really I think like Jesus said love, loving of one another, self-giving love. It leaves a taste for that and you want it for the rest of your life.
0: You mentioned that military families move often, and you and Daniel and the girls have recently moved too. Um, and, you know, it can make you feel disconnected and even isolated, but you've been proactive in creating that community in your new uh, assignment.
1: How are you doing that and, and why? When we moved, we sought to prayerfully discern the church that we were called to be a part of here and not to do that too hastily, but to do it quickly, um, meaning not to sort of waffle around um, dipping our toes in as quickly as we discerned where we felt God was calling us to go to church. We tried to jump in and view it as a place for us to grow and be fed but also a place for us to plug in and to serve the local body here. So we attend the weekly gatherings of our church and we've started serving in its missions. We moved about three months ago. So we've been doing that for maybe two months now. We tithe to support the pastors and the staff. And yeah, as soon as we knew, okay, this is the place God has for us. We, we tried to jump in and be contributing members as well as to allow it to sanctify and challenge and grow us. And one other um, sort of broader way that I try to look at the world, especially moving and meeting all new people, is that I try to remember in all of my interactions that I have living inside of me the hope of the world what every person that I meet needs, not me, they don't need me, Mary Foki. They need the hope of the world, Jesus. And he lives inside of me in the Holy Spirit. Every single person I meet is made in his image. And if they are already a Christian, I try to find that out as quickly as I can and then begin to get together, fan into flames, the gift of God that is inside both of us. And if I find out Okay, this new person I met is not a believer. I try to earnestly and Holy Spirit led share this hope with them through my actions and whenever possible through my words as well. And I think that helps me, especially moving or being in a new situation. I don't, I just look at people as hopefully fellow Christians, but I already have the thing that gives me meaning and purpose in my life, so I don't need to seek that in my relationships. It's something I either want to encourage other people with me on that walk of faith or I'm trying to show them the hope of Christ. And it makes things a lot less nerve-wracking, I think, because I'm not seeking new friendships to validate myself. And that's a shift that God has matured and grown in me, probably largely through moving around a lot.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, you've been involved in church pretty much your whole life, most of the time willingly. Um, so you've seen the good and the bad uh, in church life. It's not all; it's not all perfect. Um, and God's given you a burden to see people engage differently with church and with the body of Christ. Share what's on your heart and what shaped your thinking on that.
1: So I'm really fortunate that what my parents modeled for me was a deep and sacrificial commitment to our local church. They were not shallow or surface level Christians. They were not merely attenders or consumers, which is, there's nothing wrong with that for a time if you're just learning about who Jesus is. But once you become a Christian, deep sacrificial commitment, um, I guess seeing that in my parents, it has always been my internal, I suppose, litmus litmus test, as it were, for what it looks like to be a Christian, to be a committed, meaningfully serving member of a local church. Um, Of course, there are some seasons of life where this can look different, Um, but as I've grown and matured in my faith, I firmly believe still in the importance of being meaningfully connected. And I think that's become more and more firm. One place in the Bible uh, that I think of when I think of church commitment is the opening of Acts, where Luke, who wrote Luke and then Acts, opens, opens the book up by saying the first book I wrote all about what Jesus began to do and teach. And if you read Acts, it's Jesus like leaves in the first chapter to go up to heaven, his actual physical body. So it's implying that Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and teach without his physical body there, which means the Holy Spirit through the church is what Jesus is doing in Acts. And I think a huge takeaway is that he's still doing and teaching in the world through the same way. It's almost entirely about regular people, um, through the power of the Holy spirit spreading the church. Um, it would be a lot less messy if Jesus had personally stayed and reigned as the head of the church in the flesh. Um, and actually, that's one thing that I I look forward to sort of learning more about in heaven because Jesus says it's better for you that I go away so that I can send to you the advocate, the Holy Spirit. And that just surprises me looking and at my own personal sin and the own my own personal messiness that God chooses to use me and chooses to use the church, which is a bunch of a bunch of me's. It's a bunch of sinful, messy people. But we're not God's plan B. It's how he chooses to work in history. In Genesis, he put Adam and Eve to rule the world on his behalf, knowing what we would do. But it, I guess it's just his nature to be a power sharing God. I really have a passion, I think, the more I read the Bible to be committed to it, not because it's going to be perfect or because I'm perfect but because I think that's how God wants to work in human history.
0: Well, God certainly shows his love to the world when imperfect people can love other imperfect people in imperfect. And really, the Lord empowers us to love in perfect ways if we'll let him. And that's a testimony to the world because, boy, we can rub each other the wrong way, but still love one another. That's powerful. Mary, you're a mother of three little ones. Your life is crazy sometimes. Uh, running after this one or that one. What advice do you have for other moms who are struggling to stay connected to the Lord in the midst of all their responsibilities?
1: We've touched on it a little bit already is be connected with other local Christians. Don't try to struggle through solo. I do a lot of walks and a lot of play dates with other moms to just do life together. Nobody has it all together. Um, So I think especially in the stage of parenting that I'm in with little tiny kids that make messes everywhere, I try to be very willing to let other Christians, especially into the reality of the messiness of life, not try to clean it all up. And you can't come over to my house until I vacuumed kind of thing. I, I want to keep my life as neat as possible, but that's just not the reality of having three little kids a lot of the time. So to be willing to really let other believers into your life, even in all of its glory, dirty toilets or whatever, that is community. And that's how I stay connected um, to Christ is by really having meaningful connections in the midst of life as it is.
0: So as we close, uh, Mary, would you share about a woman in the Bible who's inspired or encouraged or taught you something? Ruth
1: is my biggest non-Jesus biblical hero. She lived during the time in Israel's history when the judges reigned, and all the people in power were running her nation into the ground. It it was a mess. It was a very dark time. If you read Judges, it sort of goes from bad to worse. And her story sits in that context. It opens in the time when the judges ruled. And it shows how God was still working salvation. The plot line up to that point is humans have sinned and we need a savior, we need a hero, and that is going to be what God promised in Genesis 3. He's going to have a seed of the woman, the hope of the world, that's going to crush the head of evil. And that seed is being carried forth. It goes to Abraham, it comes to the people of Israel, and now it's a big mess. And that, that seed, that hope, is carried through her, through Ruth. The genealogy at the end of the book, make sure to point that out that she is the bearer of of the hope of humanity. And when you read the story of Ruth, she is she doesn't do anything by the world's standards. She's not a hero or a powerful leader. She is a faithful daughter-in-law, a faithful wife, a faithful mother, and she puts her trust in Yahweh in God. Nothing more, but also nothing less. And in the kingdom of God, her quiet faithfulness and obedience is a model and just points to the surprising way that God's salvation plan is carried forward. And in my story, that's been a huge encouragement since I think I'm called, at least in this season, to do something more similar to that a life of quiet faithfulness.
0: You know, as I've thought about what you've shared, um, the story in John 6 of the young boy who offered his five barley loaves and two fish to Jesus came to mind. You know, sharing his lunch might seem like a really small thing, not very important in God's plan, but it was. Jesus blessed his offering, he fed 5,000 people, and he taught the disciples several lessons from it. That are we're still learning today. And you know, while the small boy was not the hero in the story, he exhibited that radical ordinary hospitality that you talked about earlier. And Jesus, allowing Jesus to be the hero in the midst of that radical ordinary hospitality, because his small gesture was important enough to be included in the Bible for all the future generations to read. We read about it today. So when we do those small things out of love and obedience to God, recognizing that Jesus is the hero, the savior, that he really is, he can do amazing things in and through each one of us. Mary, would you take a moment and pray for our listeners?
1: Father, thank you that you are the hero of the story, of our stories and of human history, that it doesn't rest on us to be perfect or to save the world, we can rest in your salvation, that on the cross and through the resurrection, we have hope of life everlasting. I ask, Lord, that you would help each one of us to rest in your love, that we would know how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ for us, that we would just marinate in that and that it would transform our hearts that we would be energized and excited to share that love with those that we come in contact with. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in. In our show notes at hergodstory.org, you'll find scriptures and other information we talked about. And don't forget to sign up for our emails and you'll get a free six week devotional on women of the Bible. You can download. Or you may want to purchase a 12-week devotional for just $12, knowing that all the proceeds will go to our Widow and Orphan Fund. If you enjoyed this episode, consider starting a Her God Story podcast club. You can find more information at hergodstory.org. We'd also love to pray with you on our 24-7 prayer and text line. So give us a call or text anytime at 855-459-CARE or email us at prayer at somebodycares.org. Now, dear friends, I bless you from Ruth, Chapter 2, verse 12. May the Lord repay you for all the little things you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge. Her God Story is a ministry of Somebody Cares America and International. To find out more about or support the ministry, go to somebodycares.org.